name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I, do we have the lights on? You guys look so dark this morning. It's crazy. Like, it's like you're in black and white and I'm in color up here. So uh, there we go. There's a little bit of light. All right. I want you to be able to see your Bibles as you open them to Luke 17. I'm glad that we are able to be together this morning, though uh, I can look out here and tell there's a lot of people on the live stream this morning as well, so we have a good mix. Uh, I'm thankful for everybody making the choice they needed to make, but we wouldn't have even had a choice uh, had we not had a group of volunteers here at 6.30 in the morning yesterday, salting, scraping, and getting the parking lot ready, hoping we could have upward basketball. That did not work out. We will make those games up, but they were also doing that so we could have church this morning. So uh, thank you to those that came out and made that happen yesterday. Uh, it was a huge gift to us. And uh, here we are. So Luke 17 is where we're at. And as you turn there, I want to throw a couple of theological terms out to you as we start that will frame up our time in the Word together. I want to talk about the difference between common grace and covenant grace. Common grace and covenant grace. A lot of times you'll hear people say that God loves everyone. And that is true in a sense. Uh, It is not true in the sense of salvation. We are not all God's children. God's children are those whom he has saved by his grace, those whom he has brought into his spiritual household. Uh, But it is true uh, that God loves everyone in the sense that the blessings of of God's grace, uh, there, there are certain blessings of his grace that are poured out on all people. There are blessings that are not just restricted to those who have followed Jesus. Uh, Blessings of grace that are common to everyone. So we see God's common grace in the physical world. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So the sun came up this morning on those that love the Lord and follow the Lord, and the sun came up this morning on those who do not know the Lord and do not follow the Lord. Uh, The rain uh, comes on the just and the unjust alike. Every breath that people take in this physical world is grace. Living under the heat of the sun is grace. Gravity keeping them from just floating away is grace. The wages of sin is death, but in his grace... God allows people to live and to breathe in the physical world, even people that do not follow him. So that is common grace uh, that he pours out on all of humankind. You see God's common grace in the intellectual world, where believers and unbelievers alike are able to have some grasp of the truth, and they're able to have intelligence, and they're able to have understanding, and they're able to even know who God is, even if they do not honor him, even if they don't give thanks to him. You see God's common grace in morality because believers and unbelievers are born with a sense of right and a sense of wrong. Nobody has to tell, uh, tell you, nobody has to teach you that it's wrong to take the life of another image bearer. Like that's something that you know from birth, that it's wrong to take life. No one uh, has to tell us that it's wrong to steal. Like we know this. Uh, I I would see my kids steal toys from each other and then get in trouble, and they knew before we even said anything they were in trouble because the law of God was written on their conscience. You see God's common grace in the creative world, in art and in music and in literature and dance and performance arts, cooking, 
right? You see how God's common grace enables a plethora of unbelievers to create and to produce fine work that, that stirs the mind and the soul. And none of it would be possible without the blessings that God pours out on all the people of the earth. And you see common grace in society, right? Christians and non-Christians can govern successfully. Christ followers and unbelievers can excel in public service and in business and in friendships. But this common grace that we're talking about in all these different spheres of the world does not save people. Only covenant grace saves. By God's grace, people might be skillful, they might be hardworking, they, they might be creative, they might be intelligent, they might be wealthy, they might be able to make friends and, and, and influence people, but without the, the special saving covenant grace of God, they will not have eternal life. And so we're going to see the differences between common grace and covenant grace in this passage this morning, and we'll see how you could even be healed by Jesus of a life-threatening disease, but not experience the covenant grace of God that saves you. So Luke 17, I'm going to start reading for us in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. We start this passage with a reminder from Luke that Jesus is still on the way to the cross. Right In verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem. Back in Luke 9, verse 51, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And from that moment uh, all the way to now, he is making his way toward Calvary. He is making his way toward his death. And Luke doesn't want us to forget that Jesus is on his mission to the cross. So he tells us, on the way to Jerusalem. So Jesus is journeying toward Calvary. And as he has been on his way to the cross, we have seen a litany of miraculous healings from the Lord, right? In fact, there are 13 miraculous healings in the book of Luke. We've already seen 11 of them. This morning we see number 12. And then the final instance will come in chapter 18. But this particular healing from Jesus is like a diamond among the diamonds, all right? Imagine you come into a jewelry store and there's a bunch of diamonds laid out under the glass. They're all beautiful, okay? But maybe there's one diamond that stands out from the rest. This diamond of, of healing stands out because he's not just healing one person or even two people or three people. He's healing ten people at once who are suffering from one of the most feared diseases of the first century and still a feared disease today. The men that he's encountering are suffering from leprosy. Now, leprosy was a very general term that was applied to a number of skin diseases. And so, like, you might have eczema, and that even gets called leprosy in the first century. But what we tend to associate with leprosy is what is called Hansen's disease. And we can assume that uh, with these men and the fact that they are separated from society, that this is what they were suffering from. 
Hansen's disease is when you have this slow-growing bacteria infecting your body, and it's extremely contagious. So if someone has Hansen's disease, you could get it from touching them. Uh, you could get it just from them breathing on you. And it's a horrible disease. It attacks the skin. It attacks the nerves, especially around the joints and, and the wrists, the elbows, the knees. It, it causes lesions on the skin to form. It disfigures the body, sometimes causing the nose to collapse in, sometimes causing the skin of the face to fold up. Many people think that this form of leprosy eats away at your flesh, which isn't exactly true. Instead, what it does is it causes your skin to lose feeling. So people suffering from it, uh, it, it will, they'll, they'll wear away their extremities, they'll wear away parts of their face without even knowing they're doing that damage because their body is not commuting, uh, communicating pain the way that it is supposed to. And the damage that it did to the body and the danger of spreading the disease, it left lepers as outcasts. They were ceremonially unclean according to the law. They were cut off from healthy society. We're familiar with that, right? right? We're familiar with this idea of having something that's contagious and having to quarantine. That's been the last two years of our lives. Well, imagine getting a disease that's so contagious and so dangerous that someone looks at you and says, you need to quarantine for the rest of your life. You can't see your family. You can't see your friends. You cannot continue on in your job. You just became homeless. You just became a beggar. You just became someone who will live the rest of your life in outcasts, separated from society with nowhere really to lay your head. Everyone will run away from you for the rest of your life. That is what a leper faced. They did not participate in society. They were barred from any sense of normalcy. And on top of all of that, there was this widespread belief in Jewish culture that if you had a disease, it's because you sinned. Always. If you had some illness in your life, it's always because you were in sin. You had committed some sort of sin. And in the case of leprosy, there was this belief that if you contracted that, you, you committed some sort of really heinous sin before God. So if somebody contracted leprosy, everybody that knew them would go, they must have done something really terrible for God to give them that. Now, Jesus dispelled this thought process in John 9 when you have the man who's born blind, and he's asked, is it because this man sinned or his parents sinned that uh, he is born blind? And Jesus says, neither one, right? It, it, he's born blind for the glory of God, that God might be glorified through him. And so it's not always the case that you're being disciplined or that you're being punished because you have some sort of sickness. Uh, and Jesus rebuffs that. However, this was the common belief. And so as Jesus enters this village... He is approached from a distance by ten lepers. They had to keep their distance because, again, this is what the law required. Listen to what Leviticus says. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Like I said, lifelong quarantine, right? Lifelong mask wearing, all right? You got to cover your upper lip. Everywhere you go, 
You have to shout, unclean, unclean, so everybody knows, i got to stay away from that person. Imagine having to live your life like this. It's a sad scene. And so here we have this isolated group of outcasts who seem to have found community with one another. They're unable to come to Jesus uh, according to the law. So from a distance, they are begging for mercy. They lift up their voices and cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When they call him master, it's a recognition from them that this man has authority. This man has power. This man can, can show us mercy that might change our circumstance. They have some level of faith collectively that Jesus has authority over this condition that they are suffering from. So they're crying out for mercy. And this is a pretty standard cry you hear from people in the Gospels. There's five other occasions in Matthew and Mark where people use the same words, where they cry out to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. These are the words of people who know that the authoritative figure of Christ is the only hope that they have for deliverance. It's a pitiful plea for help. Help nobody else could give. Help nobody else would give even if they could. And Jesus responds to it with mercy. He provides them from the help, or he provides them with the help they're looking for, but he doesn't do it with the action that you might expect. You might expect Jesus would walk over, that he would touch them, but Jesus isn't going to break the law. He's not going to sin, so he's not going to go and touch them. Instead, he tells them to go and show themselves to the priest. That's what they need to do in order to prove their cleanliness. And he's telling them to go and do it, but what's odd is he's, going, he's telling them to go do this before they're even healed. He hasn't done anything. He can't touch them, but you think he might speak a word of healing, right? Say something, and then they're going to look at themselves and go, wow, we're healed. And then he says, well, go show the priest. But while they still have leprosy, he says, go ahead and start making your way to the priest. This is an amazing demonstration of the power of Christ. It, it reminds me of... Uh, of the situation with Naaman and Elisha, uh, if you read in 2 Kings, where uh, Naaman is this commander of the Syrian army, and he's this big, strong, powerful, important man, and yet he is suffering from a skin disease that we think was probably very similar to what these lepers are suffering from, that he has a life-threatening skin disease. In fact, some Bible translations actually say leprosy in the text. And so in one of the raids, they had carried off this servant girl from Israel and brought her back into his house. And she's talking to Naaman's wife and says, man, if only the master knew the prophet back in Israel, he could be healed of this skin disease. And so Naaman goes to the king and says, I really want to go see this, uh, this prophet. And the king endorses it. And he goes and he gets there. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Elisha doesn't even come and, and, and greet him. Instead, sends a message, go down and bob up and down in the Jordan River. Go bob up and down in the Jordan River, and then you'll be healed. And Naaman gets angry. He's like, I don't want to go do that. I could have stayed home. Our rivers are cleaner than this river. This is ridiculous. You know, he throws a, a tantrum, and one of his servants is like, you know, we're here. Might as well try it. And he does. He goes, and he bobs up and down in the river. And when he comes up out of the water, according to Elisha's instruction, the Bible says his skin was like a little baby. And he was healed. Didn't, didn't need some abracadabra to take place. Didn't even need to touch him. Didn't even to come see him at the door. And so here we see a similar demonstration of power. Except in Elisha's situation, the power is coming from heaven through the prophet. In this situation, it's God in the flesh. 
And he doesn't need smoke and mirrors. He doesn't need to touch them. doesn't need dramatic words. In an instant, he simply heals them. All the infection, all the disfigurement, all the damage. He undoes it in a moment because he is mighty God. He is the word from the beginning. He is the agent of creation. And so he demonstrates his power over creation by healing the most feared disease of his time with what looks like ease. And so the ten lepers go, and the ten lepers are healed. Once they got to the priests, they would have had a process in front of them. A lot of times I think we read this passage and we think they ran off to the priest. They said, hey, look. And the priest said, you're healed. That's great. You're clean. And they went back home. Okay, but that's not what happened. They would have had to have stayed there for about eight days. And then the priests would have taken on this weird hybrid role of priest, doctor, health inspector, and would have watched them for those eight days. There would have been rituals and sacrifices and examinations, and once it was determined they were free of leprosy, these men were able to go back to their lives. Now imagine that. Imagine the feeling, if you've been quarantined in the last couple of years, okay? Show of hands if you're comfortable putting it up. Anybody gone through a quarantine in the last couple of years? Don't lie. All right. Okay, uh, and, and, and if you're at home watching on the live stream, you put your hand up in your living room, okay? And so what we saw, you probably couldn't see on the live stream, a majority of the people in the room raised their hand because even if you haven't had COVID, like you were exposed to COVID and you had to quarantine for 14 days or 10 days or 5 days or whatever the rule was at the time, okay? Um, so imagine that feeling, you know what you felt like when you were like, all right, I can just go get McDonald's even, you know? I don't even like McDonald's, but I couldn't have it, so now I want it, you know? Like, you, you just want to go back and do all the things that you like to do when you can finally get out. Okay, now imagine thinking that you would never get out. Imagine thinking you were going to be in quarantine for the rest of your life. That life as you knew it was over. That you wouldn't see your family again. You wouldn't see your friends again. You'd never work a job again. You'd spend the rest of your life begging and suffering. And then suddenly you're able to go back. You're able to return to a life that you thought was beyond your grasp forever a life that you thought was relegated to your past. You can go back to the people that you love. You can go back to a trade, no longer having to beg. you got to imagine they would have been so eager. I remember when I was a kid, there was a murder case in Powhatan, the county I grew up in, and my dad got called for jury duty, and we didn't see him for like two weeks. He was gone. He was sequestered. And I remember we'd watch on the news, and they couldn't show everybody's faces in the courtroom, but they would show just people's legs, and I'd be like, there's dad's legs, you know, we'd see him on there, we'd get so excited, and I'd tell everybody at school, yeah, my dad's on that jury, but I wanted to see my dad, I missed him. And I remember when he showed back up, the case ended kind of abruptly, it didn't take him long uh, to figure out uh, guilty, not guilty, the person was guilty, and, uh, and he came home, and it was a surprise to me, but I remember how happy he was just to be back with his family. And so it's that feeling for these lepers ramped up to 100,000. You would have run home. You would have kicked the door open to say, I'm back. I would have been running on air if it was me, right? There's nothing I would have wanted to do more than to see the people that I love. And that was the case with nine of the lepers. They went right back to their family and friends after their eight days with those priests ended. But that was not the case for one of them. One of them, we learn here in this text, turned back. That's what Luke says in verse 15. He turned back. Which, by the way, that's where saving faith always begins, isn't it? 
somebody turns back. They turned back from the world and turned to Jesus. Something grasped this man's soul. He looked at his own healing and, and, and he realized, I have been in the presence of someone greater than anybody I've ever met. Maybe even he realized, I've been in the presence of someone who is from out of this world. I, I've just been in the presence of the divine. He had experienced something that was beyond this world. It was supernatural. So he turned back. And Luke says that when he gets back to Jesus, what does he do? He praises God with a loud voice. He falls down at the feet of Christ and he gives thanks to him. Now, there's only one word we can, we can put on this man's actions here. That's worship. That's what we're seeing. This is worship. He has turned back. He has come to Jesus. He has fallen at his feet. He is praising God with a loud voice. He is giving thanks to Christ. This is an act of unashamed worship. This is exactly what it should look like when we respond to the miracles that God works in our lives. And you have to say it's even more powerful to see this happening because this man is really, he's a double outcast. In Jewish society, he's a double outcast because he's not just a leper. But he's a Samaritan. The Jewish people and the Samaritans, they were not friendly with one another. The Jews referred to them as dogs. They had no dealings with them. And this animosity stemmed from the fact that when the Jews came back from exile to rebuild the temple in Nehemiah's generation, you know who was there trying to stop it? The Samaritans were trying to stop it. Plus, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and they claimed that that was the true home of worship, and they also said that everything that comes after Deuteronomy in the Old Testament doesn't count. It's not really Scripture. So the Samaritans believed that the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs and the history books like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, that uh, it, it was you know, about as good as Mother Goose. That you could just toss it out. It had no bearing on life. It was not authoritative. And then you add in the fact that Samaria gladly allowed criminals from Judea to come up and find a safe haven there in the north. So the Judeans didn't particularly appreciate that either. And so there were these mutual feelings of animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, which again would make this man a double outsider, a double outcast in Jewish society. He would not have been allowed into the inner court of Jerusalem's temple because he was a leper, but he also wouldn't be allowed in because he was a Samaritan. And yet now here he is bowed down at the feet of the one that the temple had been foreshadowing the whole time. He's at the feet of Christ. He's at the feet of God incarnate. And he is worshiping him publicly. Something that he probably never could have imagined. It's a beautiful moment and Jesus responds to this moment by asking three rhetorical questions in verses 17 and 18. Were not ten cleansed? Well, of course, the answer is yes. Where are the nine? It's a natural follow-up. And then the third question, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And what's implied in that third question from Jesus is that the other nine lepers were all Jewish. They had Abraham's lineage, they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the temple, but as amazed as they surely were regarding their healing. They did not return to Jesus to give praise. Maybe they went home saying, man, that's a special man. But they didn't come back and praise him. 
Maybe they went home saying he's a miracle worker, but they didn't come back and praise him. Maybe they went home appreciative of his authority and his teaching ability, but they didn't come back and praise him. Maybe they thought, you know, that guy could be the Messiah. And maybe he is going to overthrow these Romans. But they did not come back and praise him. Whatever the reason for not coming back, these men go home indifferent to Jesus in terms of worship. And sadly, that was also the reaction of so much of Israel. The nation had been waiting on the Messiah to come, but most of the Jewish people of his generation were happy to eat the meals that he produced with his miraculous works and to come and to see the show when he was healing people and to come and to listen to his teaching, but they didn't worship him. They didn't count him as God in the flesh. They didn't count him as someone to follow. And then some of them were more than indifferent to him. They were antagonistic toward him and wanted to see him dead. But this one man, he knew he had met the Messiah. He knew, I've got to return to him. I've got to find him. I've got to worship at his feet. He knew Jesus was not just the answer for his leprosy. Jesus was the answer for his soul. And so he goes back. And look at what Jesus says to him in verse 19. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And this verse is the key to the whole passage and understanding what's going on here. So, track with me on this. When the lepers are healed in verse 14, we get this English word, cleansed, at the end of the verse, right? The Greek word for cleanse is katharizo. That means exactly the way it translates in English. To be clean, to be cleansed. And so then... Uh, the healing in verse 15 is described. When, when, when this man, the one that came back, uh, when he saw that he was healed, eiomai is the Greek word there for healed, and it means exactly the way it translates, healed. But in verse 19, when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, made you well, translates from the word sozo in the Greek. Sozo is very different from eiomai or katharizo and here's why it's different it's because this is the word used in the new testament uh, quite often to describe not just physical healing but we're talking about spiritual salvation so in john 3 verse 17 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him saved sozo In Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Sozo. Titus 3.5, He saved us. Sozo. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There are 25 different instances in the New Testament where sozo is used and it translates to spiritual salvation. So here's what that tells us. When the man met Jesus the first time with the other lepers, he was physically healed. Eiomai, katharizo. But when he came to Jesus and he worshipped him in faith, that faith saved his soul. Sozo. And this man is now healed outwardly and inwardly. All ten found answers for their leprosy. Only one found an answer for his sin. It's the one who turned back and worshiped the Lord. So connecting this back to where we started this morning, you could say all ten of these men experienced the common grace of God. It was common grace, the common grace of Jesus, that provided their healing. They received 
the benefit of His loving and merciful compassion. It did not save their souls, it saved their lives, though. And this stuff goes on every day. I would assume that somewhere in the world today there will be a Muslim who finds out that his cancer is in remission. I would assume that somewhere in the world today there's an atheist who will be happy that he has tested negative for COVID after a tough run with it. Somewhere in the world today, probably right here in Virginia, maybe right here in Yorktown, there's an agnostic recovering from the flu. And while we know that they might not attribute their healing to God, we know there is no healing apart from God. There's no healing apart from His sovereign hand, whether they want to give Him glory or not. So the healing of the ten here is a brand of the same sort of common grace that falls on the just and the unjust every single day in our world. But this Samaritan has received more than common grace. He returns to Jesus. He's worshiping in faith. And Jesus says his faith has made him well. His faith has saved him. Sozo. So he has not just received common grace. He has received covenant grace. He's been brought into the covenant of God. He has been brought into God's covenant family. The promises of God now belong to him because he is a part of God's spiritual household. He's been forgiven of his sins. He is a child of God. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ and now he is in Jesus' family. All ten of these men face two choices. To be content with the common grace they have received or to turn back and to embrace Jesus as Lord and go beyond the common grace and receive covenant grace by faith and be saved. Only one man made the choice to do the latter. And we're all faced with the same choice this morning. Are we going to go beyond common grace and embrace Jesus as Lord? To really drive this choice home, I I want you to think about God's reason for healing all ten, even though just one would come back. Why does God do things like this? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God pour out His common grace on all of humankind? Why does God see to it that people who are opposed to Him in their hearts and in their lives sleep in beds at night and drink clean water? I think there's a few reasons Number one, God pours out His common grace to draw in all who will be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, if you ever wonder why Jesus hasn't come back, this verse gives you a a great reason. It's because there's still people to be saved. The day of the Lord has not yet come because the Lord is still drawing His people to Himself. And one of the ways He draws them to Himself is through common grace. And that is certainly what happened with the man in this passage. It's the physical healing that he experienced that drew him in to taste spiritual salvation. This is what this this merciful God that we worship does. Right? This is the God who said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that is restricted in the garden, then you will surely die. And you know, I believe that God, when He said you will surely die, did not mean that you will die hundreds of years from now, but that you're going to die after you eat from this tree. And then, they didn't die. That isn't because 
the Lord is slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. They didn't die because He allowed grace to abound in their life. Today there are surely millions, millions that He is pouring out His common grace on in order for His grace to abound, that they would be drawn into covenant with Him. And maybe it's you. Maybe you need to stop and take stock of your life and think about all of the blessings that God has given you, from the air that you breathe to the clothes that you wear on the back to the house that you live in to the job that you have and realize that these blessings do not come to you in a vacuum, that they have come to you from the living God and that He's pouring these blessings out on your life in order that He would draw you in to experience a blessing that far exceeds houses and clothes and jobs and money and health. He wants you to experience salvation. He wants you to be made well by faith, like this man in this passage. Number two, I think God pours out His common grace to demonstrate His mercy. That's that's what the lepers cried out for here, right? Lord, we need mercy. Jesus, Master, show us mercy. God's shown His mercy every single day. In Luke 6, verse 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is a a verse that is very popular because of the beginning of it, and I think a lot of times we just skip over the end of it. Right? Because maybe we just are so focused on the love your enemies part. That's a high, that's a high ethical bar. It challenges us, so you can see why we focus on it. But it's an amazing statement about the character of God at the end of that verse. That our God is kind to ungrateful people. Our God is kind to evil people. Which, by the way, is the same reason you ought to be kind to Him. Because it's what your Lord does. God pours out kindness on these people. From the delay of the punishment that sinners deserve to the air they breathe, to the water they drink, to the medical care they receive, God is showing His merciful kindness to to humans on a daily basis. And many will accuse God of being forgetful. And many will accuse God of being unjust. And many will say that God is out of control. There are some who even say that He's malicious not realizing that the very breath they use to make such accusations against God is a mercy from Him. God doesn't need to put Himself beyond reproach. Understand that this morning. He's not on trial, and He never, ever will be. The only trial you're going to experience with God is the one where He is judging your life. You will never judge God. So while He's not on trial, and His... And, and, and by his nature, he is beyond reproach. And he doesn't need to prove his mercifulness to the world every day. He still does it because he's that gracious. And so his mercies to the world are a repeating proof of his kindness every single day. What accusation can anyone bring against the mercy and the goodness and the kindness of God without looking like an ungrateful fool? Number three, God pours out His common grace to show off His glory. Recently, this documentary came out about the Beatles and how they made the album Let It Be. It's called Get Back. It's just a bunch of raw footage. It's like 10 hours of raw footage of them making the album. I'm not here to argue with you this morning about the moral substance of the music of the Beatles, okay? 
or whether or not you think it's good music. But I personally will go to my grave believing the melody of Let It Be is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard with my ears. Like, I, I just think that song is just beautiful. I don't even know how you write a melody like that, how it doesn't exist, and then you come up with it, and you make it exist. So I watched that documentary, and I, I was amazed as I watched it, seeing Paul McCartney sit down with Ringo Starr, and he's explaining this song to Ringo. And you're going, this is happening. Like, I'm watching Paul McCartney write Let It Be with Ringo Starr right here on my television screen. And so as I watched it, I thought, how do you come up with a melody like that? Well, it's the common grace of God. Paul McCartney wouldn't have uttered a single note in his life if it had not been for the common grace of the Lord. Only God can give man a talent like that. Do you realize that God is even glorified in the brilliant talents and giftings that he has bestowed on unbelievers from birth? Like when I watch Kevin Durant move in a way that a seven-foot man should never move on a basketball court, okay, I watch that and I just go, God is glorious. You have to watch that and say he's glorious. Most seven-foot men run in ways where you go, yep, yeah, that, that guy's just not made to run, okay? And then you watch Kevin Durant doing things that like six-foot guys do, and you're like, how does he do this? It's the Lord. I look at an Edward Hopper painting, and I see his ability to capture a moment and explain that moment to you in detail, or a Norman Rockwell painting, and, and you watch it, you can look at the moment, there's no words, there's only paint, but you know exactly what's happening. It's the Lord, man. He is glorious, and He has gifted people in this way. When I read Dickens and see the way he painted pictures with words and no paint, you say, God is glorious. And so these are the reasons that God pours out his grace upon all of humankind. To draw in those who will be saved, to demonstrate his mercy, to show off his glory. And so today is a day for you to stop and think about your own life. And think about the ways that the Lord has demonstrated his mercy towards you and think about the way that God has shown off his glory to you and and has demonstrated his mercy in you and showed off his glory in you and through you and here is the question is that going to be it for you is that where your experience with Jesus is going to end will you receive the blessings and then just go home or will you turn back and fall down at his feet is common grace going to take you to covenant grace? Will His poured out blessings draw you into His promise? Understand that the same choice that sat before the ten sits right before your own heart this morning. How will you respond? We're going to go to the Lord in prayer here in just a moment. And Pastor Ben and our worship band is going to come back up and lead us in a final song. We're going to sing about God's grace uh, and how it's greater than our sin. I think that's a, a very appropriate song for us to sing considering all the grace talk this morning. But I don't know where you're at uh, today, like literally physically, whether you, if you're listening to me, you're here, you're home, you're in your kitchen, you're in your car, wherever you're at. But uh, I, I would challenge you wherever you're at to really consider what we've seen in the scriptures this morning and, and ask yourself, does my life look more like the nine or more like the one? Am I taking in the common grace blessings and then just kind of going about my life? Or is it driving me to worship? 
your answer to that question is going to say a lot about your relationship with the Lord and where you stand with Jesus. We all need to be at his feet. And if, if you go, I don't even know how to do that. I, I, I never turned back. I've never worshipped the Lord. Didn't even realize all this stuff was really from him. Good news that I have for you is that today is the day of salvation. You can do exactly what this man in this passage did. You can repent of your sin. You can turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus in faith. Confess your sin to him. And he will forgive you. And he won't forgive you on the basis of your goodness. He will forgive you on the basis of his goodness. That he died on the cross for you. He lived a perfect life and he took the punishment for every sin that you have ever committed in your life. Or ever will commit in your life. Sins you committed yesterday, sins you committed today. And he will forgive you of that sin. And then he will give you eternal life. Because he did not remain dead after he died on the cross. He rose from the grave to defeat sin and death and to prove he's the Son of God and to prove the sacrifice he made on our behalf is acceptable to the Father. And so he can give you an eternal life. He's the only one who can. So turn away from your sin. Put your trust in Christ today. Receive forgiveness. Receive eternal life. And then going forward with him as your Lord, turn the blessings that he gives you into praise. Today's the day to do it. If you would like to do that and you are nervous about, well, I never really talked to God. I need somebody to help me with this. Um, you can email us or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. We would love to talk to you about it. Also, uh, after the service, I'm going to be out at, our, uh, at our, our greeting table for our pastors. It says meet the pastor there. I'll be waiting there. I'd love to speak with you this morning if you have questions uh, but get in touch with us and uh, respond to the grace of God. Let's stand together and let's close in prayer as our band comes.